A few years ago, I was in an airport coming back uh, home from a speaking engagement that I had just finished. I picked up a newspaper and I read an editorial that said that America is a divided nation. The editorial went on to say that the United States is more divided today than at any time since our Civil War. What I found to be especially interesting in the article was what we were divided about. The article went on to say that the fundamental division in America is not racial, it is not economic between the rich and the poor, and it is not fundamentally political between our major parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. No, the article went on to say that the main division among the American people today is a division about worldview. And the article went on to suggest that there are two dominant worldviews that are competing for the minds and the hearts of the American people currently in the United States. On the one hand, there is the secular worldview that basically says that if there is a God, we cannot know anything about God, so we must, might as well be agnostic or atheistic. According to this worldview, moral laws are all relative and they are creations of culture so that moral obligations are like customs whether you drive on the left side of the street or the right side of the street and are purely human inventions. Uh, marriage and family uh, could be between gay partners or heterosexual partners. It doesn't matter. The fundamental essence then of the first worldview is secularism, a secular view of the world is the fundamental driving force behind this division among the American people. This worldview is and will continue to affect the rest of the world. And so it is important to understand it and to know how to address and deal with it. <clears throat> the other worldview was monotheism, particularly Judeo-Christian monotheism. According to this worldview, there is a transcendent God. Uh, right and wrong are revealed by God, both in Scripture and in the creation and the natural moral law that's rooted in nature. That there is a right and wrong, that God is our creator and we are responsible to him. That marriage is fundamentally between one man and one woman committed to each other for life, and so on. Now, it might be difficult to believe that America could be so divided today because the history of America in its very beginnings is overwhelmingly Christian in nature. And yet it's very clear that for a long time now, Christianity has not been the major worldview of most Americans, though it is still one of the two main ones competing for American attention. Now, what I'd like to do in the time we have in this session is I'd like to explain to you very briefly about the history of the emergence of secularism in the United States. The second thing I'd like to do is to explain to you what is the core of the secular worldview that's all around us. And third, what some of the implications are for this shift from a Christian worldview to a secular worldview in the United States. Now, my purpose is not to give a history lesson about the United States of America. 
My purpose is to warn you that your culture and your nation can go the same direction if you're not careful. There are lessons to be learned from the successes and the failures of the church in the United States that apply cross-culturally. So by looking at the United States as a test case, I think there are things that can be learned for my brothers and sisters all around the world. Let's begin in earnest then and see what we can learn about worldview in the history of the United States of America. How did we get to this present point? When the Pilgrims and the Puritans came to the United States in the 1600s and in the 1700s, they were overwhelmingly committed Christians. They began to plant churches and they began to plant colleges and universities. And their desire was to establish a government and an educational system that honored Jesus Christ and the teachings of the Bible. As a result, 117 of the first 124 universities that were founded in the United States, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and so on, were founded to promote the gospel ministry. Thus, if you were to go look at the administration buildings on these campuses, if you were to examine their libraries, you will find biblical texts written in the architecture. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I did my Ph.D. in philosophy at a school called the University of Southern California. If you walk across campus and you see the president's building, above the president's building on the roof is a set of statues. And those statues are Methodist preachers who are looking down on the campus to make sure that the University of Southern California stays faithful to biblical Christianity. Well, I can assure you that the University of Southern California has not been interested in biblical Christianity for at least 80 years. <clears throat> the point I'm making, however, is that during the early part of American history, there was a great emphasis placed upon loving God with all your mind, on learning how to think Christianly, and on the importance of a Christian and a biblical worldview. <clears throat> This carried up until the middle of the 1800s, until something happened at that time, and it's that event that I want to share with you right now. From around 1820 to, eight, to the 1860s, there were three awakenings that broke out in the United States of America, where the Spirit of God came powerfully on America and Hundreds and thousands of people were converted to Jesus Christ. These awakenings began in the state of New York. They spread down through the eastern seaboard of the United States, around the Atlantic Ocean, and then spread into the Midwest, where the state of Kansas and Missouri are currently located. And much good was done in these awakenings, but... <clears throat> What we discover in these awakenings was they tended to be anti-intellectual. The emphasis was placed upon emotion and feeling. And the attempt of the evangelist was to bring people under the conviction of sin, to make them feel guilty and in need of a Savior, 
and then ask them to trust Jesus Christ right there on the spot by coming forward in a crusade. Now, there was nothing wrong with this. In fact, I believe in that kind of preaching myself. But what was missing was an emphasis on the life of the mind and the importance of learning to think as a Christian. I like to put it like this. Up until then, Christianity in the United States involved the head and the heart. But as a result of these awakenings in the middle of the 1800s, Christianity no longer involved the head and centered right here in the feelings and in the heart area. And so we begin as a result of these awakenings to have a period of mindless, more emotion-filled Christianity. Now, this had two results for the church in the middle to the late 1800s in the United States. First of all, it led to the outbreak of major American cults. The Mormon Church, Christian Science, the Jehovah's Witnesses, all broke out in or near the upper New York area where these awakenings had taken place because the people who had been saved were not taught and they emphasized feeling as opposed to learning and they were victims of new religious movements that took advantage of their lack of teaching. Let me illustrate this. You will recall that I said that in these awakenings there was an emphasis placed upon feeling to the exclusion of the mind. I also said that it should be both the mind and feeling, but the mind was left out. People were expected to make a decision for Jesus Christ because they felt the conviction of sin and they felt their need for salvation. This emphasis on emotion to the exclusion of the mind is emphasized at the beginning of the Book of Mormon. If you pick up the Book of Mormon, you will read, if you want to know whether this book is the Word of God or not, ask God if it's His Word and you will experience a burning feeling in your heart and that will prove to you that this is God's Word. Now, emotions are important, but they're poor guides to truth. And your feelings are not good tests for whether something is true or false. It is not a good idea, then, to test whether the Book of Mormon is really the Word of God based upon a burning in my heart that happens when I read it. Where did this idea come from that the emotions are a good test for truth? Well, it came from the overemphasis in those awakenings among solid Christians who left the life of the mind out. And that was one implication of these awakenings in the middle of the 1800s. The second implication was that you no longer needed to be theologically trained to pastor a local church. To pastor a local church, all you needed was the feel that you needed to feel called to preach, and you could pastor in a local church. There was a curious result from this. If you were going to teach young people literature or history or science or art, you had to know something. But if you were going to lead a local church as a pastor, 
you literally did not need to know anything. You simply had to be sincere and have a heart filled with warm, good intentions. So we began to develop an anti-intellectual view of the ministry in the United States. So up until the middle of the 1800s, the life of the mind was valued on the part of the Christian community in the United States. These awakenings that took place in the middle of the 1800s were right to emphasize emotion, but wrong to not emphasize the life of the mind in addition to emotion. And as a result, the church became anti-intellectual, as can be seen in the generation of highly emotional cults, and the loss of value of training on the part of ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're like I am and you believe in a personal devil, you will discover that the devil knows exactly when we're down and how to attack us at our weakest point. Right after these awakenings broke out, in 1858 and 59, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, his book, The Origin of... Origin of Species was published, and you begin to have an attack in the late 1800s come from Europe to the United States, an attack against the Bible, and an attack against Christianity. Some of this attack came from Darwin's theory of evolution. Some of the attack came from German criticism that began to try to criticize the historical reliability of the books of Moses and the Old Testament. Some German critics were calling into question the historical reliability of the Gospels in the New Testament. And as a result, this assault from Germany put a question mark over the authority of the Old and New Testaments as the Word of God and their historical reliability. The third form of attack that came from Europe was through the writings of Immanuel Kant and David Hume. Hume wrote in the 1700s, as did Kant, and into the early 1800s in Scotland and Germany. And Kant and Hume argued that there was no evidence for God's existence and there were no successful arguments for God's existence. According to Kant and Hume, faith should be separate from reason. You have reason over here, and you have faith over here. There is no evidence for God. There are no arguments for God. That's a good thing, because that opens up the door for faith, which should be completely separated from reason and knowledge. So we began to have these three intellectual assaults in the United States from around the late 1850s, up until the first two decades of the 20th century. And these were intellectual assaults that came at a time when the church was already becoming overly intoxicated with emotion and anti-intellectual regarding the life of the mind. The, The assault came from Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, German criticism of the historical reliability of the Old and New Testament, and the philosophical writings of David Hume and Immanuel Kant, who raised questions against the evidence and arguments for God's existence and separated faith from reason. As a result of that, 
From the period of 1900 to 1930, the evangelical church begins to withdraw from culture. And Christians began to privatize their religion, and they made religion a matter of the heart, not the head. They separated faith from reason, and they suggested that Christianity should be limited to a spiritual compartment of one's life rather than being the leaven for the entire disciple's life in general. Now let's think about these separations for just a minute. I've already said that the head was separated from the heart. It followed that the disciple is to cultivate emotion and sincerity of heart But learning to think as a Christian was not a part of being a disciple. This would mean, for example, a Christian who is a businessman would need to be filled with tenderness toward Jesus but not learn how to think about being a Christian businessman who thought as a Christian in his work. So that the head was separated from the heart. The separation of faith from reason was every bit as dramatic because now faith was the blind choice to believe something in the absence of any evidence. And we have this definition of faith actually in the United States today. Many people believe that faith is primarily a choice to believe something in the absence of any evidence whatsoever. And so the result of these two separations, the separation of the life of the of the mind and the heart and the separation of faith from reason led to an anti-intellectual Christianity at the turn of the 1900s into the 20th century. The third separation was the separation between a secular and a sacred life of the disciple. On this view, again, Christianity is primarily a matter of one's spiritual life, but it has little to do with one's work. It has little to do with the way one approaches politics. It has little to do with one's recreation and how one views amusement and play. And it has little to do with one's social ethic and social behavior. Instead, Christianity is primarily meant to be a part of a private compartment in one's life. Now, what this did is it led to a Christian community in the United States that became increasingly ingrown, increasingly isolated, and uninvolved in the political and social and moral issues of their culture. This stance of withdrawal from the larger community was the result of an anti-intellectual spirit in the Christian community in the United States as a result of the awakenings of the middle of the 1800s. Now, I say to you with all of my heart that the first lesson that you have to learn from our failures is that as the church grows in your culture and among your people, you cannot allow yourself to become hostile to reason and the life of the mind. It is important for you to allow Jesus Christ to be Lord of all of your life and not just your will and your emotions. 
He must be Lord of how you think. He must be Lord of how you see the world. He must be Lord of the way you interact with culture. And you as a follower of Jesus Christ have the privilege and the obligation to think carefully about how you will engage your culture and the issues that are important to people where you live. We cannot afford to have the church be isolated and overemphasizing the spiritual to the exclusion of the entire life of the disciple. Nevertheless, that's what happened in the United States as people began to withdraw from culture and become more anti-intellectual. Now, as culture began, as Christians began to withdraw from culture, you have a situation where there is a vacuum created. This vacuum was created by the withdrawal of the church from society. As a result of this, something had to fill that vacuum. And that raises the second part of my outline, where are we today? Part one was the history of what happened in America, and I've tried to share with you it is the shift from a vibrant intellectual life to a withdrawn anti-intellectual spirit. The second thing I want to talk about is where are we now today once that vacuum was created? And my answer is that we now live in the most secular period in the history of the American people. American culture is rapidly secularizing in its nature. Now, what is at the very core of the secularization of American culture? In a word, it is a struggle among three worldviews that are fighting for the allegiance of the hearts and minds of the American people. These worldviews are not limited to America. They're, they're pervasive throughout Europe and due to American movies and American television, American politics, and the spread of American business and culture, I say with sadness that these worldviews are going to be, if they aren't already, impacting your villages and your towns and cities and your attempt to serve Jesus Christ right where you live. What are the three worldviews of which I speak? Happily, one of them is Christianity. Christianity is still a vibrant, powerful, growing, important worldview that is fighting for the hearts and minds of the American people. And you should know that your brothers and sisters here in the United States are seeking to be faithful to our Lord Jesus as best we know how. So one of the vibrant worldviews in American culture is the Christian faith. The other two worldviews are scientific naturalism on the one hand and postmodernism on the other. Let me explain these worldviews in order. Very briefly, scientific naturalism is committed to two fundamental principles. It is committed to a view of how we know truth, and it is committed to a view of reality a view of how we know truth, and a view of reality. The naturalist says that the only way that we can know truth is through the hard sciences, 
chemistry, and physics. If you cannot prove something in the hard sciences, then you can't know it. This would mean that claims in morality and ethics and claims in religion, since they cannot be proven in chemistry and physics, cannot be known one way or the other. And so you will have people today in America making the claim that who knows who God is, whatever he, she, it, or they is, no one has any knowledge of this because we can't prove the existence of God in a science laboratory. And so what we have is the emergence of scientism. Scientism is the idea that only what can be proven in science can be known to be true, and if something can't be proven in science, it can't be known. I had a very interesting encounter with this in my own personal life several years ago when I was giving an evangelistic talk. I was invited to share an evangelistic talk at a dinner party where people were bringing non-Christians to hear me speak. I was warned by one person that he was going to be bringing his boss, who was a scientist and an engineer, who hated Christianity, and that he was going to be coming to this gathering. Well, I was looking forward to meeting him. Before I spoke, sure enough, this friend of mine and his boss walked in the door, and while I was at the refreshment table getting something to drink, I was introduced to this gentleman. I shook his hands and said, welcome, I'm glad you're here this evening. And he immediately began to attack me. He said, I understand that you are a Christian philosopher and a theologian. And I said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. And he said, well, I used to be interested in that myself when I was a little child, but I've now outgrown it. Since I've become an adult, I realize that the only thing that you can know is what you can measure and quantify and test with your five senses in the science laboratory and if you can't quantify it and test it with your senses in, in chemistry and physics, you can't know it. And religion and philosophy and theology can't be proven scientifically. It's nothing but a bunch of idle nonsense. Now that's an example of the theory of how we know truth that is a part of scientific naturalism as a worldview. Now, before I go on to the naturalist theory of what's real, I can't resist offering a critique of this particular theory of knowledge. And my critique is to say, basically, that this theory of how we know truth is not correct because it is self-refuting. Let me explain. Something is self-refuting if it refutes itself and makes itself false. For example, if I were to say, no sentence of English is longer than three words, that sentence itself would be false because the sentence itself is longer than three words. Or suppose I were to say, there are no truths. Well, that statement itself is being offered as a truth, which would contradict itself because it says there are no truths. So a statement like, no sentence is longer than three words, or there are no truths, are self-refuting statements. A self-refuting statement sets up 
a set of criteria for being accepted, and the statement fails to live up to its own criteria of acceptability. Self-refuting statements, therefore, are false. The statement, I can only know things that can be proven by chemistry and physics, is not itself a statement that can be proven by chemistry and physics. In fact, the statement is not a scientific statement at all. It is a philosophical statement about science. Indeed, it is a philosophical statement to the effect that no one can know whether any philosophical statements are true. The theory of knowledge, then, about how we know truth, that is at the very core of the scientific naturalist worldview, is self-refuting. The statement, I can only know what can be proven through science and chemistry and physics, is not something that can live up to its own standards of acceptability. You will recall the gentleman that I was speaking to, whom I mentioned just a moment ago. I let the gentleman speak for about a minute, minute and a half, and I interrupted him and said, pardon me, sir, but I have a dilemma and I don't know what to do. Am I right in understanding you say that the only thing that we can really know to be true are statements that you can measure in the laboratory and test in chemistry and physics? And he said, absolutely, that's what I believe. And I said, well, then I don't know what to do with what you've been saying for the last minute and a half because you've uttered maybe 30 sentences in that time that have come out of your mouth. And so far as I can tell, not a single sentence that you've stated so far could be tested scientifically through the methods of chemistry and physics. I hope you can understand my dilemma. If none of your own sentences can be tested through the methods of chemistry and physics, and if you claim the only thing that we can know to be true is what can be tested through the methods of chemistry and physics, it follows that you're not even claiming that you yourself know your own statements are true. Why then should I listen to you if you don't even know what you're telling me is the truth? Well, the man turned pale. He had never in his life had anyone say that to him before. And at that moment, he literally changed the subject. The point that I'm trying to make to you is that scientific naturalism has a theory of how we know truth, and it's the idea that science and science alone is our guide to truth, and that statement is not itself a scientific statement. It is self-refuting. In addition to a theory of how we know, the worldview of scientific naturalism contains a theory of what is real, known as physicalism or materialism. According to this theory, the physical world is all there is. Matter and matter alone exists. On this view, there is no God. There are no demons or angels. In fact, there is no consciousness at all. Consciousness on this view is merely the workings of the brain. Nothing more, nothing less. There are no moral values. There is nothing that's right and wrong. There is no purpose to life. Once you die, there's no life after death. There's no reason why you were here. And there is no ultimate meaning to your life or to my life. This is the worldview of scientific naturalism. This worldview 
is at the very heart of the American and Western university. It is likely to be the worldview that the brightest and the best of your culture who come to Western universities to study and return to the homeland, who have studied engineering and science and so on, are liable to absorb. They're liable to pick up when they're with us the worldview that only what can be measured scientifically can be known to be true. That is the worldview of scientific naturalism. I'll have more to say about it later on in this series. The third worldview is called postmodernism. It is basically the idea that there is no such thing as truth or falsity, that the difference between what's true and what's false, what's real, and what isn't real, what's right and what's wrong, is all relative to your culture. What's right and what's real and what's true in one culture may not be what's right and what's real and what's true in another culture. Reality, truth, and and morality are completely relative to your group, and there is no right or wrong answer to the things that matter. I met a young gentleman not long ago, and we were talking about God, and he said to me, listen, I'm glad that Jesus Christ means something to you, but that's fine for you. I know other people who have different religions that are true for them, and I think that's perfectly fine for them. Buddhism is true for Buddhists, Christianity for Christianity. There's nobody that's right or there's no one wrong. Everything is true relative to their own individual group. Now, what this has done is this has created a situation where we now have Christianity fighting against postmodern relativism and scientific naturalism in American culture. Now, these other two worldviews, scientific naturalism and postmodernism, don't agree about a number of things. But there is something they do agree on that makes this conflict in America about worldview important for those of you who do not live in the States. And here it is. Both postmodernism and scientific naturalism agree that there is no non-scientific knowledge of reality and there's no immaterial world. Let me say that again. They both agree that there is no knowledge of reality that is not scientific and there is no immaterial world. If you want to know what is the very foundation of Western secularism, it is this. It is the, the Western view of knowledge as limited to the hard sciences. Earlier I called that scientism, and both the postmodernist and the scientific naturalist agree that there is no knowledge in religion, there is no knowledge in ethics, there is no knowledge in art or literature or history outside the hard sciences. And so the core of the Western worldview is essentially the idea that there can be no knowledge of reality outside the five senses and outside the hard sciences. This has led again to the view that both postmodernists and scientific naturalists accept that there is really no such thing as a real, immaterial world that is real for everyone. Now this has had disastrous 
implications for American culture. Let me share with you very, very briefly uh, three of these implications that I want you to watch out for as you serve Christ in your own homeland. The first one is this. This has led to the marginalization of the Christian voice in culture. By marginalization, I mean that laws are being passed and social conventions are being formed to silence the Christian voice and to keep Christians speaking to one another without bringing their Christian views into the public arena of ideas. You see, if you can't know whether Christianity is true or false, because it is not testable scientifically, then you have no right to assert your opinion in the public marketplace of ideas, and Christianity is treated as something fine for Christians as long as they leave it in the church and don't bring it in the public. Now, what this has done, again, is it's created a situation where we now have the marginalization of Christianity and religion in a secular America. The second implication that's happened as a result of this, as I said earlier, is the emergence of moral relativism. America is becoming increasingly morally relativistic in its views, and uh, it has sometimes been said that in American colleges, if students come into college believing in a right and wrong, they will be relativists before too long. The idea that there is no right and wrong is becoming increasingly pervasive around the United States, and this is an important implication of the worldview struggle that is facing America. The third implication of this worldview struggle is that Jesus Christ is not an intelligent person. Even among Jesus' followers in the United States, Jesus Christ is not viewed as an intellectual leader. Non-Christians, of course, clearly do not think of Jesus Christ as an intellectual leader, but neither do Christians. Jesus is viewed as a spiritual leader, perhaps as a moral teacher, as a person who had spiritual insight and spiritual wisdom. But Jesus Christ is not viewed as someone to be taken seriously as an intellectual, thoughtful person. The idea is that religious people are not intellectuals. Jesus was a religious leader, therefore Jesus is not an intellectual. Now these three implications, the marginalization of Christianity, the emergence of moral relativism, and the loss of a vision of Jesus Christ as an intellectual leader has created chaos in American culture, and we are in a position of seeing a number of shifts take place in American society. So now let me summarize what I've said so far, and then we will move to the final part of this session, and that is the shifts that have happened in American culture. What I've said so far in part one is that while Christianity was an intellectually vibrant movement in early American history. As a result of the awakenings in the middle of the 1800s, the church became anti-intellectual and withdrew from cultural engagement and began to speak only to itself. This led to a faith, reason, head, 
heart, secular, sacred separation, and it created a vacuum in culture as the church withdrew. That raised the second part of my topic, where are we now? What was it that filled the vacuum left by the withdrawal of the church? And my answer is, scientific naturalism and postmodernism were the two worldviews that rushed to fill the vacuum left by Christianity. And while Christianity is still a vibrant worldview in America, it is at war with scientific naturalism and postmodernism over the question of whether there is any knowledge of reality outside the hard sciences and whether there is any such thing as an immaterial world. This worldview struggle has led to the marginalization of Christianity, the emergence of moral relativism, and a loss of a view of Jesus Christ as an intelligent person. Now, I want to share in the closing moments we have left five shifts that have happened as a result of the secularized worldview among the American people. These would be shifts that I would urge you to look for in your own culture as the result of secularizing tendencies that may come to your neighborhood. I've already mentioned the first of those shifts, and that is the shift of religion from being about knowledge to being about blind faith. For centuries, the Bible was seen as a source of knowledge of reality, every bit as much as a math or a science textbook. On this view, the Bible has more to say about knowledge than it does faith. Knowledge of God is possible. You can know there is a God. You can know what God is like. You can actually know that Christ rose from the dead, and you can know that you are secure in Him. These are things that can be known. That shift is taken place that is led from that view to a view where biblical teaching is something that has to be accepted by a blind, arbitrary act of faith. It is blind because there can be no reason given for it. It is arbitrary because it is a step of faith in the dark that takes place in a vacuum. Thus, the shift from Christianity as a knowledge-based religion to a pure faith-based religion has contributed to Christianity marginalizing itself. The second shift in American culture is a shift between happiness as a life of virtue and character to happiness as a feeling of pleasure and satisfaction. Let me explain. For years, ever since Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, ever since Plato wrote the Republic, and Aristotle wrote the Nicomachean Ethics in 300 B.C. and 400 B.C., ever since the New Testament, and ever since the medieval theologians like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, for century upon century upon century, happiness was defined as a life of wisdom, character, and virtue. The book of Proverbs says that happiness is a life that is rooted in the fear of the Lord and wisdom. 
Jesus tells us that happiness is a life that is lived according to the kingdom of God in the way Jesus himself would live. That is, a life of honesty, truth, and compassion and mercy. Happiness for the longest time then meant a life of wisdom, character, and virtue. Now think of what this means. If I'm going to live a life of wisdom and virtue, I have to know the difference between vice and virtue, right and wrong. This definition of happiness actually presupposes that moral knowledge is available. Absent moral knowledge, I would have no way of telling whether I was being a wise father or an unwise father, whether I was a virtuous husband or a vice-filled husband. So happiness in the classic sense assumed that there was available to us moral knowledge outside of the hard sciences. Once that idea was set aside and knowledge was limited to what you can gain in chemistry and physics, truth was dethroned as the guide for life. After all, how can truth guide life when you can't know it? And in its place was the satisfaction of desire as the only reason for living. In America, then, the shift from knowledge to faith led to a shift from wisdom, character, virtue, and truth to a view that the purpose of life is the satisfaction of my feeling and my desire. And as a result, happiness now today means a feeling of pleasurable satisfaction. And so we have a shift from happiness as a life of wisdom and character to happiness as a feeling of pleasure and satisfaction on the part of the American people. It's very interesting because if you define life, uh, happiness as wisdom and character, Jesus tells us the way to get that is to give yourself away. But if you define happiness as a sense of pleasurable satisfaction, the way to get pleasurable satisfaction is to be self-centered and self-absorbed and always focusing on yourself to the exclusion of other people. This is a very, very important problem in American history because we are now experiencing depression rates that are off the charts as a result of this shift. The first shift from, from Christianity as a source of knowledge to a religion of faith. The second shift from happiness as virtue, wisdom, and skill at life to happiness as a personal feeling of pleasure, satisfaction, of desire. The third shift is from ethics that centers around duty and virtue to ethics that centers around personal rights. It used to be that the moral life was conceived of in terms of virtue and duty. I, as a person who wants to live a moral life, will seek to live a life of virtue and duty. Think about it, for example. If I am a father and I am trying to be a morally upright father, what kind of questions would I ask myself if that were my target? Well, I would be asking questions like this. What character traits do I need to have as a part of my character that will help me be a good dad? Among others, for example, patience would be a character trait that I would want to develop as a good father. I would also ask questions like, what are my duties to my children as a good father? What sorts of obligations do they owe them? And one of the duties that I would have is I have the duty to spend time with my children so that they get to know who I am and know my heart. Now, those kinds of questions 
are questions about the virtue, the character, and the duties that make up being a dad. That used to be the conception of the moral life when Christianity was viewed as the center of American culture. But since Christianity has been dethroned, the shift from morality as being about duty and virtue has changed to now morality is about my personal rights. And the questions that I ask are, what are my rights? Think about the abortion debate in the United States. The abortion debate is about the right to life versus the right to choice. But that is, I submit, the wrong debate. The debate should not be about rights, though rights are important. The fundamental debate should be about virtue and duty. The question should be, what does a woman, when faced with a question about abortion, do if she wants to do the virtuous thing and do the thing that would be her duty to her, her, to her fetus and to others? Her question should not be, what are my rights? That's the wrong question. That's the third shift. The fourth shift was a shift from classic freedom to contemporary freedom. Classic freedom was the power to do what I ought to do. That kind of freedom assumes that there's knowledge of a subject matter. Just to illustrate, if I have classic freedom with regard to the piano, that means I know how to play the piano well so that when I sit down behind a piano, I'm free to play whatever music I want to play. According to the classic definition of freedom, freedom is a power to do what I ought to do, and that assumes that I can know what I ought to do. The contemporary definition of freedom is not the power to do what I ought to do, but the right to do what I want to do. Note very carefully that the contemporary definition of freedom is tied in with the emotions and with feeling, the right to do what I want. The historic notion of freedom was tied into knowledge about the way the world is, the power to do what I ought to do. And so we see that this fourth shift from freedom as the power to do what I ought to the right to do what I want results from the other shifts. And finally, the fifth shift is from a classic understanding of tolerance to a contemporary understanding of tolerance. In the classic understanding of tolerance, you begin with the idea that you think that your opponent is wrong about something that matters, but you will tolerate that person in the sense that you respect their right to make their views known in public, and you will treat them with respect even though you don't agree with them. So according to the classic notion of tolerance, you can only toler those, tolerate those you think are wrong, you believe they're wrong about an important topic, but you respect their right to make their case, and you will treat them with respect. In that sense, then, I as a Christian would tolerate a Muslim in the sense that while I do not agree that Islam is true, I respect a Muslim's right in my country to preach his religion and to make his case, and I will treat the Muslim with respect and courtesy even though I disagree with them. The contemporary definition of tolerance is the idea that you're not supposed to say other people are even wrong in the first place. 
according to the contemporary definition of tolerance, no one's right and no one's wrong. Everything is relative. On that view, to tolerate a Muslim would be for me to say, well, Christianity is only true for me, but I recognize that Islam is true for you, and I don't think you're wrong. It's just not my truth. These five shifts from Christianity as a source of knowledge to Christianity that has to be accepted by an act of faith, from happiness as a life of wisdom, character, and virtue, to happiness as a feeling of pleasure and satisfaction, to morality centering around duty and virtue, to morality centering around my own individual rights, to freedom being the power to do what I ought, to freedom being the right to do what I want, and finally from tolerance as my disagreeing with you, but I respect your right to make your point and I will treat you civilly to tolerance, meaning I'm not even supposed to say you're wrong in the first place. These are five shifts that have come about in America as the result of the secularization of American culture. What have I tried to say to you in our brief time together? I've tried to say that the history of American Christianity is a history of the emergence of an anti-intellectual spirit in the church in this culture that left us with a place where a vacuum was created in society as the church withdrew. That vacuum was filled by secularists in the form of a naturalist and a postmodern worldview that are fighting against Christianity for the hearts and minds of the American people. And this secular version of naturalism and postmodernism have created five shifts in American culture that have helped to create the most secular society that the United States has ever seen. I urge you as Christians to be on the lookout for these worldview changes taking place in your communities and for the shifts that go along with them.